1: Rise, got my coffee in my hands, I can feel the sound of the ocean.
2: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You just heard a clip of That's the Way, a song by Tyrone Hornbuckle, a very talented blues musician from Northeast Ohio. I like blues. Me too. Tyrone is our featured musical artist today, so hang around till the end of the podcast. We know you're going to want to hear the whole song and learn more about Tyrone's blues sensation. But right now... Grab another log, campers. You'll want to keep that fire burning for another Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our storyteller and researcher, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
3: Hi, everybody.
2: Ah, it's cold out, Paula. Yeah. How about a nice, warm, cozy mystery this time?
3: Oh, Steve, there are not too many mysteries of that variety out there. This one is not cozy at all. It's plain awful. But there is a silver lining in this one. The way a town responded when a terrible tragedy was dropped at its doorstep is definitely something that will remind you of humanity's warm side.
2: Ah, well, I'm intrigued. And... I'm ready. Let's, let's give this a go.
3: All right. Well, for this one, we're actually going to start in Chester, Nebraska. When our story takes place, Chester, and that's right along Nebraska's border with Kansas, is a rural village of fewer than 400 people. Now, it's 10 a.m. on Christmas Eve in 1985, and Chuck Cleveland leaves his home in Chester to go get a haircut. He decides to travel a back road, a dirt road, flanked by harvested cornfields, and it's frigid out—forty degrees below zero when you figure in the wind chill factor. But he's hardcore, and he figures he might be able to shoot a pheasant along the way. Yeah,
2: that's super hardcore.
3: <laughs> it is. That's life in the in the world. You know, you're g- going to get a haircut. Maybe I can kill Christmas Eve dinner on the way. Right. Oh, <laughs> well. Chuck, he doesn't get far at all. He's perhaps a couple of miles from home when a bit of color catches his attention. He stops his pickup truck and hops out for a closer look. And there, laying in a ditch on top of fallen snow, is a body. Chuck moves in closer. He can see enough now to tell it's a little boy, a skinny thing, 55 pounds on a 4-foot-2-inch frame. He has blonde hair and freckles, and he's wearing blue pajamas, a zippered sleeper with white foot pads.
2: Maybe I'll get to this in a second, but does it kind of know how long he's been there? Um, the coroner. Will okay, I was wondering if he thought it was like fro, you know, frozen. Or...
3: Yeah, it's frozen. Yeah,
2: it's um, a frozen okay. body.
3: All right. And this is the time before cell phones, so Chuck has to jump back in his truck and return home. And by the time he gets back. He's shaking. Before he even picks up his house phone, he races upstairs and into his son's bedroom. His son's about the same age as that small body in the ditch. And he embraces his son. I mean, he really needed that affirmation that his own child was safe and warm. Right. Then he calls the county sheriff. Well, Sheriff Gary Young is the first officer on the scene. Before anyone else even arrives, he notices marks on the boy's neck he thinks it looks like the boy has been strangled. Now, this little boy is big news in this area of the world. There hasn't been a homicide in the Chester area in 15 years. So Christmas Day editions of newspapers in Nebraska, Kansas, and Iowa announce the tragic discovery, and they're all accompanied by an artist's drawing of the boy. Authorities have no idea who he is. And of course, leads and tips start coming in. A couple of days after the body is found, authorities think they figured it out. They even schedule a press conference saying they've got some news to announce. But the press conference is canceled and a press release is issued. The boy they thought might be the body that discovered turned out to be very much alive. Meanwhile, the pathologist conducts an autopsy. And he does not agree with Sheriff Young's cursory review of the marks on the boy's neck. The marks could have been caused by freezing weather, the coroner says. Huh. And the boy was suffering from a respiratory illness. So officially, the cause of death is listed as inconclusive. There was no evidence to prove it was murder.
2: I mean, you really can't fault him. You see, marks on a kid's neck—you know—and you're not—you're not a doctor. You're going to assume the kid was strangled.
3: Yeah. yeah. And even after they told me it was caused by freezing conditions, I'm thinking, why would freezing conditions leave a mark on the neck? But yes. he's the coroner, so i got to assume he knows a heck of a lot more than I do. Right. Anyway, the coroner determines that the date of death was probably two days before the little boy had been found, about December twenty-two. But if the boy wasn't murdered, you know, you've got to wonder what circumstances led to him being found in a ditch. Who would be cold-hearted enough to discard his tiny body that way if there was no foul play
2: involved? True, unless the kid was autistic and kind of wandered out in the snow.
3: Ah, well, it, Sheriff Young actually addressed, it, addressed that to reporters. He said, quote, I know that kid didn't walk out there and lay down and go to sleep. Somebody put him there. Well, the thought was a heartbreaking one to the residents of Chester, Nebraska, who had started calling the child, Little Boy Blue, in reference to the color of his pajamas. And police continued to chase down, lead after lead. They say, oh, he looked like a little boy that had ridden a bus into town. And someone else said, he looked like a boy carried by a woman and a Spanish-speaking man that were in a nearby town. He didn't match any descriptions of missing children on national databases, they asked all of the local schools to review, you know, the, the student populations to see if, if he belonged to any of them. He definitely wasn't local, so he certainly didn't walk there. And with fewer than 8,000 people in the entire county, someone would have identified him yeah, if he talked, was from that area.
2: Yeah, I think we talked about this in Salem with that, you know, with that kind of population, you almost know. Everybody knows right. everybody.
3: So the boy might not have been local, but local residents made this abandoned child one of their own. A few months after his discovery, after no one claimed the body and authorities were ready to release it, the town took charge. Bob Thomas, the town jeweler, said, quote, they dumped him. We've got to bury him. If he's our boy, we're going to treat him like our boy. So one resident donated a cemetery plot, the mortuary donated its services, others gave money for a casket, for a headstone, for flowers, there were volunteer pallbearers, a singer for the church service, and on March 21, 1986, more than 400 people attended his funeral
2: United Methodist Church. Wow, that's a lot of people. Yeah. I hope I'm, 400 come out for me.
3: That was actually bigger than the population of the town.
2: That's great. Cra- well, yeah. Good for them. Way to come together.
3: Absolutely. Well, they buried him with the name Matthew, which means gift of God. For two years, authorities were unable to identify little boy Blue, who was now buried in their local cemetery. But the town's reaction, how they kept his grave decorated with flowers and toys, inspired Reader's Digest to do an article about the boy in 1987. And the right people saw it. Good. A couple in Wyoming came forward to say they had been looking after a boy that had matched his description. They said his name was Danny Stutzman, and that he was nine years old. They said he came from Wayne County, Ohio, where his parents had been Amish farmers in the village of Dalton, and that his widowed father had temporarily left the boy in their care for several months before returning to pick him up just before Christmas in 1985. Reminder, that's the month he was found dead. Right. Now, authorities had a name to consider, but how could they prove this boy was that boy? Because back in Wayne County, Danny Stutzman had no medical records or dental records to compare, and DNA testing had yet to be discovered. But authorities went old school. They turned to a form of identification that had been around for decades, fingerprints. Fingerprints, okay. Yeah. Well, the Wyoming couple, they had photos school books, even a school report card that Danny had handled. Oh. They found his fingerprints and they sent them to the Nebraska State Patrol Crime Lab along with prints that had been recorded by the county coroner and a match was made.
2: Now this is pretty common you know in the Amish community. You wouldn't have, you know, lots of photos or you know, records or even even medical records. Absolutely, absolutely. The reason
3: there is a photo Of Danny, and we'll get to this very soon in the story, is that his father leaves the faith. Okay. So they are no longer practicing the Amish faith. Okay. I'll get to that a little bit. But it would take another two years. Now, the sheriff and Nebraska State Patrol investigator Jack Wyant, they launch a search for the boy's father. His name's Eli Stutzman, a one-time Amish dairy farmer who had left his Dalton, Ohio community a couple of years earlier, and hadn't been seen since. It would take another two years to pin down his location in Azle, Texas, where the 37-year-old man was living in a trailer court. When authorities arrested him, they soon found he was a man surrounded by mysterious deaths.
2: A serial killer?
3: It could be. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was the shooting death of a man in Texas that Stutzman had lived with, There were two unsolved murders in Colorado in which Stutzman had been questioned, and there was the tragic death of his own pregnant wife in 1977. Ida Stutzman died after a fire broke out in their milking barn. Now, the coroner ruled that she died of heart problems related to smoke inhalation, but no autopsy was performed, and the fire was never investigated even though many in the community believe Stutzman had set the fire,
2: I've been in a milking barn. That's a, that's pretty big. It'd be hard to believe she couldn't escape.
3: Yeah, well, I I don't know enough about smoke inhalation to know whether just being in the vicinity of it would be enough yeah. to, to uh, you know exacerbate a heart condition. But you know the Amish shun autopsies, and that may have played a role into why the coroner decided not to do an autopsy on her. Right. But certainly it's something that's sticking out now, knowing that this man has been surrounded not by just one, but five mysterious deaths, including the death of his own child. It's just how many of us can say that in right. our life? Right. Well, back in, in Dalton, Stutzman had belonged to the Swartzentruber order of Amish. It was a conservative sect that shuns all modern conveniences. He was one of 13 children born to Eli and Susan Stutzman, and he was raised on a sprawling farm on Welty Road in Wayne County's East Union Township. He attended an Amish school, and as an adult, he taught Amish children. He later married his wife, Ida, and Danny was born on September 7, 1976.
2: Ah, you're younger than me.
3: Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, he was delivered by Dr. Elton Lehman in Stutzman's two-story farmhouse on Moser Road. Dr. Lehman said he remembered Eli Stutzman as a caring father and said Danny got the full compliment of childhood vaccinations, something rare in the Amish community. And you know, i I mean, people know that your name's Yoder, but you are not that far removed from Amish ancestry yourself. Your your dad was raised Amish. That's
2: right. My dad was raised Amish, and his dad was kind of leaving the Amish community at that time, and my dad followed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: Well, Danny wasn't a year old when he lost his mother. On July 12, 1977, the Stutzman's barn was ablaze, and Ida, as I said, had been working to try to save milking equipment from the building, but without the autopsy... Uh, Everybody had to take uh, the coroner's um, best guess that smoke inhalation had contributed to her death.
2: He wasn't even a year old.
3: No, no, he was a baby. Well, the newly widowed Eli and his infant son Danny stayed in their Moser Road home for another five years. But people in the community said Ida's death was a turning point in his life. And after that... Eli openly abandoned the ways of the old order Amish community, and he was shunned for breaking the faith. Hmm. Do you know? I'm sure do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what what's involved with shunning.
2: Oh yeah, they they cut you off completely. You know they 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 feel that um, they feel that you'll come back to the faith if you, they cut you out. And sometimes sometimes they cut you out for good too. And that's got to
3: be psychologically really hard. Nobody right. will talk to you. Nobody will help
2: you. Right. No. They, they are, you know, the Amish are like that. As a matter of fact, uh, I remember my, you know, reading a story about this um, guy who was, uh, who was a child molester. who was Amish. And the Amish uh, community was trying to fight to keep him out of prison. And I asked my dad, I said, why was that? And they said, because they want to handle it. You know, they want to handle it. You know what? And trust me, that guy doesn't want the Amish people to handle it. <laughs> he, yeah. wants, he wants to go to jail. Yeah. So oh yeah, they God. do. They they try to handle their own society.
3: Well, he couldn't handle the shunning anymore. It became too stressful. So Stutzman and Danny moved west to Colorado, where it was his intent to start a horse ranch. But back home, the new owners of the Stutzman home on Moser Road began to receive some strange mail. The letter writers were all men responding to a personal ad, and it was apparent to the homeowners that the letter writers were homosexual. Years later, an Akron man identified only by the name Jerry revealed that while Stutzman was still in Dalton, the two of them met through a personal ad in The Advocate, that's a national gay publication, and they had a relationship for two years. He described Stutzman as, and this is a quote, a very good-looking man who was not a carouser and whose only fault was that he chewed tobacco and constantly had a cup nearby for spitting. He said Stutzman was devoted to his farm, devoted to his son, but that he told him he just couldn't take the pressure of living in his Amish community anymore and needed to get away. So Eli Stutzman and Danny left Ohio in 1982 when Danny was about six years old. In a letter, Stutzman's father wrote him and said that he was not welcome back, quote, if you're not wearing Amish clothes. Wow. Well, over the next three years, Stutzman and little Danny moved between Colorado, Texas, and Wyoming. It's unclear why, but in the spring of 1985, he left Danny with a family in Wyoming in a sort of informal foster care arrangement. Stutzman went back to get Danny on December 14, 1985, telling the Foster family he was taking Danny back to Ohio for Christmas. Well, Danny obviously didn't make it. After Stutzman was arrested in Texas, now this is, just to keep you on track, this is four years after Danny was discovered in Nebraska. Oh, okay. Okay? Right. After he was arrested in Texas, he told detectives that when he picked up Danny that day, The boy had a bad chest cold, and he was on antibiotics. He said his son fell asleep in the back of his AMC gremlin as they drove across Nebraska. He said during a driving break, he discovered his son in the backseat dead. He said he tried to resuscitate him, but when he failed, he got scared and decided to dump him in a ditch to, his quote, let God take care of him. Then he gassed up at a gas station. Incidentally, he gassed up at the station that was owned by Chuck Cleveland. Oh, the
2: person who found him.
3: Exactly, okay. the man who found him. Then he drove south to Sol- Salina, Kansas. Is, Selena? Is it Salina? Hmm? Salina. Sorry, Kansas people. He drove south to Salina, Kansas to meet a boyfriend. Stutzman's mother later revealed she had received a letter from him months after the fact saying Danny had been killed in an automobile accident. Now, investigators, they know the accident story is not true, and they didn't believe Danny died of a chest cold. But with an inconclusive autopsy, the prosecutor said the most he could charge Stutzman with was felony child abuse. That charge was eventually reduced to abandoning a body and concealing a death. Stutzman was sentenced to 18 months. He served but a year. But authorities weren't done with him. When he walked out of the Nebraska prison, Texas was waiting. He was wanted for the death of Glenn Pritchett, a 24-year-old who had been rooming with Stutzman and Danny while the two men worked construction jobs together. Pritchett was shot through his left eye. His body was found in May 1985 in Austin, in a ditch. Stutzman was convicted of murder and sentenced to 40 years in prison. He served 13 years. That's crazy. Yeah. And after his release, he settled in the Fort Worth area. In 2007, 56 years old and diagnosed with HIV, he killed himself by cutting his left arm.
2: Well, he killed himself by cutting his left arm. Usually, yeah. it's a wrist. I never heard of that.
3: Yeah, that's the way it was described, but it's okay.
2: your wrist is part of your arm, I guess. Yeah, they just maybe, maybe weren't specific. He, maybe, but, the, maybe just the main artery in his arm, and he just bled out. You know, they say sometimes you you don't
3: cut the across, you cut up, um, because you can't repair it that way. And I guess if you did that, that would be considered be your, arm. your arm.
2: Yeah, okay, that makes so, sense.
3: But, you know, Stutzman, he had never changed his story about what happened to Danny Some wonder if Danny knew something about Pritchett's murder or one of the other two homicide victims that his father had had contact with. Notably, Danny had been left with that Wyoming foster family in May of 1985. That was the month Pritchett was killed. But there doesn't appear to be anyone left to tell the tale. Eli Stutzman is dead. His wife is dead. Three of his associates are dead. And, of course, little Danny is dead. Well, back in Chester, Nebraska, even decades later, people still pay their respects to little boy Blue, the Amish boy from Ohio who was dumped into their care on a frozen Christmas Eve.
2: Oh, that's just tremendously sad. Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say about it. This is the segment of our episode where we ask an Ohio Mysteries listener to weigh in with their th- own thoughts and theories of the case. And today, we welcome Amy Freeman. All right. Welcome, Amy. Hi. It's great to have you here. Normally, we have Paula interviewing the armchair detective, however, she's out of town, probably investigating some kind of mystery. Mm. Who knows? Edgar Allan Poe began writing stories during the 1840s and ushered in the mystery genre. He also introduced the first armchair detective, C. August Dupin. Dupin could solve crimes that police couldn't. The mystery of Marie Roget was based upon the true story of a murder near New York City. Dupin obtained his information from newspaper accounts. Dupin being the first and every armchair detective since gather their second-hand information to solve crimes. Poe called it ratio sensation, using intellect, intuition, and logical reason. Armchair detectives almost never visit the crime scene or interview any suspect or witness. So here we are with you, our August Stupin. Amy lives in Cuyahoga Falls and is a mother of three. She has listened since the very beginning, and we appreciate that, of course. She also works for Akron Marathon. So, Before you heard this podcast, have you ever heard this story before?
0: I don't believe I ever have. No.
2: So being a mother, this probably tugged at your, your heart, right? I mean, this child was thrown away.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That was the first thing that drew me to this case in particular when I heard about it. And like I said, I have three children um, ranging in age from 17 to 21. And um, You have one
2: in Ohio State, right?
0: I do, yes. And that was one of the best places where my husband and I listened to the Ohio Mysteries podcast. It's a two-hour drive from where we live in Cauga Falls to Columbus. And it's the perfect time if we hadn't seen him or heard the heard the podcast on a given week, that we can kind of stockpile a few, and it gives us something to talk about, and of course, learn all the great stories about Ohio, so. Yeah, of course, of
2: course. So, uh, you know, this child was thrown away, the sheriff claims that the boy was strangled, the coroner states that the marks on the neck come from a freezing temperatures. Have you ever heard of this?
0: No, I haven't. That you know? struck me very odd that freezing temperatures would cause that, so. Yeah, me
2: too. I, I, I still don't get it. I tried looking it up, and I didn't really find anything, but I really didn't give it full effort either, right. so. Right. So they finally tracked down the father, Eli Stenson. So, what are, what is your thoughts on Eli?
0: Well, my thoughts on him, I think he was um, described as sometimes emotionless and kind of a loner. And I know he had that Amish upbringing originally, so that probably, you know, played a role in some of his beliefs. But then it seemed like he kind of had his own independent spirit. So, yeah, I was
2: thinking that too. You know, growing up Amish and. Uh, you know, if it's true that he was gay, that's right. a pretty tough community to grow up in if you're gay as well.
0: Right. You know? And some of the photographs that I saw when researching it, just a quick Google searches and whatnot, they showed him in clothes that looked a little bit more modern. and um,
2: so, so fashionable, maybe?
0: Yeah, so I think fashionable certainly for the Amish, 80s. Right. right. I don't know if it was, you know, jeans and a leather jacket or something, you know, kind of along that nature.
2: Well, could he kill his own son?
0: Well, that was one of the first questions that I had. And I know it was proven that he was arrested and in prison for having killed a roommate or someone else. But the question is, is whether he could murder his own son. And I know that for him, it would have been his firstborn and it was a son and he's a father. So you'd think there'd be some connection there. And then he would have watched him grow up. So I think that they would have had that personal attachment and be hard to do that. So, you know, it wasn't a question whether he killed somebody. We know he did. But whether he could kill his own son was kind of the first question that came to mind. And when I looked at the research and I saw the story that kind of sparked my interest was this barn fire where his pregnant wife had been killed. Right. And it seemed like there were people in the town that were suspicious that he had some connection. And some one of the research that I saw said that he didn't want a second child. So, you know, one of, the, one of the suspicions that people had in the area. So the fact that he could in any way been involved in that, I think, is kind of terrifying. And if his wife was eight months pregnant, certainly the baby would be, you know, you could see the baby in his you know, wife's belly. And it seemed like there would be a connection there. And then to kill his wife, someone who he had spent many years with. Right. So I think if you believe that he had some connection to that case, you could see that potentially... He could have killed his own son. And the other thing that was interesting, in one of the murders he was convicted of, he killed that person and then later put him in the ditch. And I think that was kind of coincidental that his son was also put in the ditch. So I think there's there's potential that he could have killed his own son.
2: So why the cover-up?
0: Yeah, why the cover-up? Let's say he didn't kill Danny. And, you know, Danny rather died of that respiratory infection
2: Yeah, why not go to
0: the police? Right. That's the first thing I thought. Why not go to the hospital, police, nearby business, anything? Certainly if he had been on an antibiotic or had some type of infection, surely they would believe that, you know, something like this could have happened. But it just seems kind of emotionless that he would have abandoned his own child on the side of the road. So there was a period of time where he did kind of separate from him. But it just seems very suspicious and kind of cold-hearted that he would put him there on the side of the road. And I know the crime of abandonment and cover-up was things he was actually convicted of doing. So it's certainly seen as a crime, even though he mentioned that he put him in the ditch so that God would take care of it, I believe he said. So I don't know if that was something from his Amish upbringing. Right. And then more to the cover-up was it was like he spent the next two years Kind of covering that up. He didn't initially come forward and say that his child died. He kind of continued to go visit, I think, maybe another gentleman or something like that. And it seemed like he had some correspondence with family. And I saw a source that said he actually wrote letters and signed Danny's name to those letters. So that is, you know, again, very kind of distorted that somebody might do that. And then eventually I know he told family that. Danny had been killed in a car accident. But it seems like he went a period of maybe two years kind of lying, and maybe he couldn't take it anymore. Maybe maybe they persisted. Too much pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that there's some guilt associated with that.
2: What are the circumstances that led to the death?
0: This, I think, was the most challenging part. I mean, we probably really don't know whether... Um, it was a wrongful death or a death that were, was caused by those natural causes. I think that's you know, been somewhat hard to conclude. But one of the things I thought was if your child who's nine years old had this respiratory infection, it was nearby, basically in the backseat, you would probably, you know, we have children, you'd hear them coughing, wheezing, potentially, Absolutely, you know, if you yeah. had a respiratory infection, right. or crying. I mean, if you were to the point of near death, and, and breathing was an issue. I would think you would you would have heard something yeah. for him to just be peacefully laying in the back seat, and he pulled over at one point and realized he was dead. That definitely leaves suspicion there,
2: especially being sick. I mean, you know, as a partner, right? You're, yeah, I feel like your, you can hear that. that.
0: Yes, right. and it's terrifying to hear that you know that wheezing or whatever with your child. So that was you know probably one of the things that stuck to me that he could could have you know played a role in that death, but we really don't know. But we do know is he put him on the roadside, which is neglectful enough exactly. in an area he didn't know. So,
2: I think one of the, the bright spots about all this is the, the town that came together mm-hmm. to act like this child who was a stranger to them, but they acted like that child belonged in their community, and they ended yeah. up uh, doing a lot for that community. What are your thoughts about that community?
0: Well, I think that what they did was Wonderful, and I think initially they probably thought that Danny was murdered and left there, and they felt horrible when he wasn't claimed and that that could be the scenario. And then later when they found out that it was actually his father who played a role in abandoning him, that was probably equally as awful, if not just as worse. So what originally they were trying to find out who this is and what happened when they later knew. It probably still left them with that feeling like. You know, neither of his parents are living, or no, his father did this to him. His mother isn't living. You know, let's take him in as our own and give him the proper respect that he deserves.
2: Yeah, it really did. I mean, just to speak to, you know, the kind of town it was, this guy was going out to get a haircut and maybe hunt his dinner that night. It's. I think they said it's a very small community. You
0: know, that Yeah, this. and it was actually a way to turn this tragedy into a story of love and how a community All right. I hope four hundred people come to my
2: funeral.
0: I know. know. It sounds like and it was an amazing, beautiful ceremony, but then still to this day people treat him like he's a member of their community and you know, he'll always be their little boy blue and you know, I think they're cherishing his legacy. So I think that's definitely the takeaway. On a side note, one thing that I also picked up on the story was Paula saying that the Reader's Digest magazine did a little story on this, and it was a couple in Wyoming, I think, that maybe had had the child that saw this and thought it sounded similar to Danny, who they had taken care of. So that article stood out to them and ultimately led to the crime being solved, and that stuck out to me a little bit because as a child, teenager, we always had Reader's Digest hanging around the house. Yeah, I remember and I remember the magazine being kind of a smaller magazine, super easy to read, short stories, obviously crime mysteries, maybe even jokes, just little interesting quick reads. And um, I would have been about fifteen, I think, when this story was in Reader's Digest. And so, who knows? I could have been, you know, flipping through and passed by the story and didn't realize that I'd be talking about it today. So, and I do wonder how many crimes may have ultimately been solved after people picking up on stories that they may have read in that magazine. so Yeah, it's
2: kind of like uh, Reddit nowadays. You know?
0: Yes, and so. even podcasts like yours. I yes. mean, there's certain um, unsolved mysteries that you guys talk about, and I know the hopes in many cases is that somebody will hear something or remember something, and who knows? You guys could be a part of that.
2: <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. All right, so any final thoughts?
0: My final thought from this just was that the impact of our lives isn't always measured by the number of days we lived. So he's nine years old. But the effect that your life or the impact that your life can have on others, I think, is the true treasure in this story. So Danny is truly a gift from God for that community, which they named him originally. And that was kind of my takeaway. No matter how short life is, you can still make a great impact on people's lives. Absolutely.
2: That's it for tonight, campers. Check out our website at ohiomysteries.com for photos, news clippings, and more on the tragic case of Little Boy Blue. We sincerely hope you are enjoying our podcasts. If you are, we've got a favor to ask you. Before the end of the week, would you please tell one person about us? We spend several hours a week making these podcasts for absolutely no pay. Our reward is just knowing that people like yourselves think what we are doing is worthwhile. So if you tell a friend and they tell a friend, well, I'm sure you can see what a gift that would be to us. We are on Facebook and Twitter, so share us and retweet us. Oh, and if you don't mind, please take a moment to fill out a review on our podcast app. That's, that's you know, that's big for us. It's we'd, huge. Yeah, we'd it's really such appreciate a little it. thing
3: to you, but it's so much to us. Right.
2: And come over to our Facebook page, too. There's a review option there as well. That's right.
3: Well, that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist, Tyrone Hornbuckle.
2: So we're going to leave you with Tyrone's song, That's the Way, which you heard a little bit at the start of this podcast. So turn up the volume, and we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery.